episode two. Somebody told me that a good leader always gets buy-in from their people. And here's what I think. I think that's a big it depends. Depends on really a lot of different things. The foremost of which is, what do you mean by a good leader? Uh, one of the best books I've heard about leadership styles is uh, written by Jim Collins. It's called Good to Great. In there, he's got five different levels of leadership, um, ranging from your personal level of leadership all the way up to CEO style or top of a team type of leadership. And uh, predominantly, we're only going to focus on the level four and the level five leaders. Remember, level five is the pinnacle of leadership in Jim Collins' book. And based on my experience in leadership, I tend to agree. But it's not most people's understanding about what a really good leader is. Most people believe a level four leader is the best. And a level four leader is the one who is standing at the top of a mountain shouting men follow me and into the breach right uh, shouting to everyone you know the any of you who have worked for a boss that we call a flame sprayer right so just yelling and screaming demanding excellent results uh, firing people who fail to perform right those are level four leaders and they lead they are able to get their team to achieve great things they are able to push their team harder than the team thought they were capable of doing. One way to look at the level four leader is, as Jim Collins calls it, the genius with a thousand helpers, right? You've got someone who truly is a genius. They have a lot of creativity. They have a lot of knowledge and insight. They have a huge team of people that they've carefully selected and identified to help them to carry out their vision. And that is great leadership, sort of. Because to be truly great, you have to lead more than just the team today. Your leadership really has to stick around long after you're gone. And when the genius with a thousand helpers leaves and the thousand helpers are left looking at each other saying, hey, now what? Typically, the whole organization falls apart. And that's not really what we want out of a good leader. Right, what we really want from a good leader is when the leader leaves, the team continues on. They've been trained. They've developed. They've reached a higher level of capacity. They're in positions that play to their strengths. They've learned how to function like a team. They've learned and to love the organization that they're in and to place their hearts and souls into that organization. And that organization is resilient. It can handle many stresses being thrown at it. And the leader doesn't even necessarily have to be there. And I'd say for me as a young leader, I always used to question. I look at people like Richard Branson and I say, man, that guy... He meditates for like three hours a day. Where does he find the time? I'm working my butt off and I can barely even get by. Well, I was striving to be a level four leader because that's the leadership model that I was looking for. And those level five leaders, they don't need to do all that kind of stuff. All they need to do is put people where their strengths are, train them, give them guidance, and then get out of their way. One of the uh, 
best quotes that I can come up with, and I'm going to butcher it right now. Uh, again, if you listen to episode one, I am doing this podcast in the car. Um, but it's from a Chinese philosopher, Lao Tzu. And Lao Tzu said, when I am a leader, and at the end of the day, when the job is done, my people will look around and say to themselves, we did it ourselves. So what that means to me is, if the leader is truly powerful, they don't actually need to lead. Now, that's some, like, Yoda-type stuff right there, right? But, I mean, think about that for a little bit, right? What are what types of decisions is the leader actually making, right? Is the leader giving people direction? Is the, the leader making decisions and asking people to just passively jump on board? Are they trying to convince people and try to manipulate them into believing what the belie- leader believes and doing what the, belie- what the leader wants them to do? Or is the leader investing in their people to the point where the people are able to make decisions without the leader having to get involved to begin with. That, to me, is the pinnacle. So how do you get there from here? And that's one of the reasons why I really like Jim Collins' book, and I highly recommend it to anybody who's serious about being a leader. Um, But I'd say one of the big things is, is that you have to really get to know your people. What are they actually capable of doing? Am I able to assess how well they are doing at that job and whether or not they are able to achieve their maximum potential in that position or am I setting them up for failure? There are some people who are very technical minded and there are some people that are much more into the human aspects of a job. If you read books like from Malcolm Gladwell, The Tipping Point, you see there's three different kinds of people in order to make an idea tip, right? You're going to need the salesman. You're going to need the the librarian, for lack of a better term, the the guy who has all of the the knowledge, right? And you're going to need the connector, okay? The salesman's one who goes around and, and tries to convince everybody that, the idea is the best and that they should kind of jump on board, right? Then you've got the guy who has all of the knowledge about stuff. They have the deep technical understanding. They're able to answer any question that people have about that that concept or that product. Then you've got the connector and the connectors know all bunches of different people. And, and I think we know people who fit into all of those categories. You know, with the connector you say, hey, I know Bob and if I want to go find a guy who will sell me uh, three used tires, I go ask Bob, and Bob knows the person I need to talk to, right? Boom, now I got my new t- my tires, right? Um, so if I put a salesman in a connector job, right? The salesman's really passionate about the topic, really persuasive, but he didn't know anybody. Well, that's not really a good business model. Right? If I want my product to tip, if I want my if I want my organization to be successful, I have to understand where people's strengths are. 
And that's not necessarily to say that I can't take somebody who's a connector and train them to be a salesman, right? That's not what I'm saying here, right? But I think we all have our own individual aptitudes and we all have our desires of the types of jobs that we enjoy more and we will want to spend the more time working on, okay? So the leader in that case is going to identify people, their strengths, align them to where they need to be, ensure that inside of the organization, positions are clearly defined so that each person is not stepping on each other's toes. And that piece is important too, because if I don't define clear swim lanes, what ends up happening is I have to ensure that I'm clearing all of my decisions with that other person out of respect. You know, if I'm sharing a house with a roommate, I'm not going to go making a bunch of changes without that roommate's decision or input because that would be rude because the roommate shares the house living spaces with me, okay? But if I'm living there by myself, well, it's my place. I do whatever I want, right? So what you want to do is making sure that each person has their own individual swim lanes and they understand what is their responsibility and what kinds of decisions that they are authorized to make on their own They don't have to clear it with anybody because the left and right boundaries have already been set for them. They're the most skilled person for that position. And then you just get out of their way and watch what they do. Maybe. Because part of this piece too is even if you're the right person and you're in the right job and you have the right boundaries, do you have the right training? Do you have the right experience? Stephen M. R. Covey writes another great book, one of the best ones that I recommend to people. It's called The Speed of Trust. And in that book, he talks about trust is really broken up into four components. And it's something that I think we've all experienced where if I get the feeling like somebody doesn't trust me, I interpret that to mean that they don't trust my integrity. And I take that personally. How could they not trust me? Do they really think I'm being dishonest? Do they think I have no moral compass? I'm a good guy. I mean well. What's the problem? And I get offended. But meanwhile, the other person says, Hey, I really like that guy, but... You know, he's new on the team and I don't know what he's capable of. Let me watch him for a little bit before I give him something uh, with a high risk to my organization. Okay. So notice how these are two different interpretations of trust. One way is I don't trust you because I don't know you yet. And the other one is you don't trust me because I have poor integrity. So getting back to the four areas, right, is that the, think of it like a tree where the roots are the integrity and then the trunk is your intent The branches are your capability or your training. And the leaves are the results. So at the roots, I can't see the roots, okay? But for a tree to be healthy, it has to be well cared for and the roots have to be healthy. So I have to have integrity. 
And if I violate my integrity, people will always question. And unfortunately, it's hidden. So it's very difficult to rebuild trust if integrity is violated. And this is one of those reasons why many professions have a code of ethics. Because being a part of that profession means that people will trust you based solely upon the fact that you're in that profession. If you go to a doctor, you trust the doctor because the doctor is a doctor. And the doc, being a doctor comes along with it a code of ethics. And we expect that the doctors will hold each other accountable if there are violations of code of ethics. And that is absolutely important because the public needs to be able to trust their doctors. Okay? Do not violate your integrity. Ever. The second thing is the trunk, the trunk of the tree. That is your in intent. So why am I doing the thing that I'm doing? You may have heard, oh, he's not doing that because he's lazy. Well, you don't know it's because he's lazy. Maybe the person is hurt. Maybe the person is uh, incapable for some other reason. You know, in the military, they say, oh, this person joined to serve their country. Well, maybe they're joining to keep themselves out of trouble. Or maybe they're joining to uh, just make some money. And maybe they're joining to go to college. We don't necessarily know what someone's intent is. But if I want to say I trust this person because they have demonstrated a intent that I like or I trust this person because they have a career of selfless service, but it turns out that their career is based upon money, when it turns out that, that I misread the intentions, why they were doing what they were doing, there is now a violation of trust. Okay, I feel betrayed because I thought you were doing things for one reason and it turns out you were doing something for another. Another component of trust is the branches of the tree, if you will, and that's your capabilities. And that I can't trust somebody, truly, if they don't actually know what they're doing. I won't trust someone to work on my car if they don't know what shape a wheel is in, right? If they can't, don't know how to pop the hood and actually look inside and they don't know what an engine looks like, they're not trained to work on my car. And it doesn't really matter if they're very honorable and if they really, really want to work on my car if they have positive intentions. If they're not trained to work on my car, I don't want them to work on my car. I don't trust them to do that. And that makes sense. We all understand that concept. And the final thing is, is the leaves of the tree. And this is the results. And going back to the mechanic example, I can have a honorable, well-meaning, highly trained mechanic, but if I don't know that mechanic and I don't have anybody who can vouch for them, and I haven't seen any results, I won't trust them. And ask yourself, are you going to go to a tattoo parlor and have that tattoo artist tattoo stuff on your skin when you haven't seen photos of previous tattoos that they've done? Because if you do, you're much more brave than I am. Okay. 
we have to have all four components of trust in order to trust that somebody will do the things that we want them to do. So getting back to the instance of the workplace where I have somebody in that position, they're, I, I trust them, right? That means that they are honest. It means that they are well-intentioned and that I, I believe that they are working towards common set of goals and they want to be successful for the right reasons. I know that they're trained because I've ensured that they have an adequate training pipeline and I've validated them based on the results. I've seen the results. I have full faith and confidence that they are up to the task at hand. They have left and right boundaries set. They're the right personality type. Boom. I have a decision to make. Do I make that decision myself or do I seek their buy-in? Well, I think a good leader knows their people. They understand if they trust their people and if they do trust their people, why? One of the most dangerous things and going back to that trust metaphor is if I trust somebody's integrity, I should not be giving them significantly impactful work to do if I don't also trust their intentions, their capability, and their results. That's something that's always important to remember. And that when somebody fails, because everybody fails, and you can't do new things and not run the risk of failure, when somebody fails, it's very important to be able to articulate to them why you have lost a little bit of trust with them, and it's not because you think they were doing it for the wrong reasons, or that they were dishonorable, or even that they lacked the training, right? Although training typically is an issue, right? But simply that, hey, you didn't get the results this time. Dust yourself off, try again. So, one of the things as a leader, we're often in a circumstance where even once we have a team that's in place, Everyone's playing to their strengths, and it's an ideal circumstance. I've got a decision that's coming ahead of me. One of the things that's really important to do in those circumstances is to say, well, how much time do I have to make this decision? How complex is it? And who do I have available that can implement it and come up with some possible solutions? If time is of the essence and you have the capability to make the decision, Make the damn decision, right? The leader does not have the luxury to just sit around and pontificate long periods of time about what should or shouldn't be done. If it's a time-critical decision, don't waffle. Use your experience in your position and make the decision. But in those circumstances, make sure that you reach out to your team and then let them know why you made that decision because it was time critical and you had to make a decision and if you have built really good rapport with your team they will understand and in particular if it's a good decision they'll give you the benefit of the doubt people want to know why you do the things you do if you give them a good reason they will understand now if it's not time critical and you got a little bit of time and little bit is a little kind of vague I interpret this as is there enough time if you give that task to somebody, is there enough time for them to make one mistake 
recover and try again. <clears throat> so, if you got a little bit of time, you got a decision ahead of you, go ahead and task it out. But task it out to people who are already having that skill set. You want to give it to your stronger subordinates, the ones who have maybe dealt with that decision before or something very similar. Now, the downside to giving tasks to your strongest subordinates is they already know how to do the thing. So, yes, they're going to appreciate having buy-in because that they're the ones who are actually generating the solution there. But on the flip side, they don't really need the experience. And giving those same kinds of decisions to the same people over and over again does not build depth on the bench, so to speak. So the solution to that is try to identify problems well in advance. And by well in advance, I mean with enough time that when you open it up for discussion, people have the opportunity to go back to the drawing board multiple times. And what this means is that that gives you the flexibility to assign that decision-making responsibility to people who are a little bit outside of their comfort zone. They don't quite have the training. They don't quite have the skill set or the experience. And this is actually, it can be a very good thing. And it does a couple things for you. The first thing is, well, by the time they're done, they will have that training experience knowledge. And now you've built some depth on the bench. And the other thing is, sometimes having somebody who comes in with a blank slate is incredibly valuable because they're able to look at a problem from a slightly different way and they'll come up with solutions that may be much more creative than what you or somebody who has a lot more traditional experience might come up with. So there's a lot of value there. And in the events that you have plenty of time, you have a lot of flexibility in making those kinds of decisions and pushing them down. Now this isn't to say that you know, a good leader should just abdicate their responsibility of decision making because absolutely the triage of the time frame and understanding your people is incredibly, incredibly difficult to do. And more importantly, if you're going to be pushing all decisions down to your people, you need to ensure that they're not being overwhelmed or overtasked as well and making sure that they have enough time to do the other things on their plate. So balancing workload is also another key skill set of that leader. But at the end of the day, if your workforce is a consolidated body and they are all working together to solve common problems and they are not working under a huge amount of pressure and they have the time and the flexibility and the training and the skills to be able to come up with solutions, then by all means, let them do it and get out of their way. But what if they don't? And, and this is the situation that I've been in probably the most. Whereas I, I'm in an organization where I really, really want to give my people an opportunity to uh, make decisions and have buy-in in my decision-making process and, and have their voices be heard. And I've actually been bit by that a few times. I say, hey, team, come together. We have this decision to make. What do you guys think? And they come up with the most bizarre, off-the-wall, total garbage 
kind of solutions that I know will never work. So then what am I stuck with? Well, I asked them and then they gave me an answer and then I say, well, this is wrong and here's why. But now, what am I doing? I have misidentified their level of training, their level of capability to produce an answer. I had not seen results before and I made an assumption. I misjudged my people and I put them in a position where I'm asking them to stick their necks out, go out on a limb, take a risk for me to come up with an answer. And now, in spite of the fact that I put them in that situation, now I'm going to tell them that it's for nothing because their training isn't where it's supposed to be. Well, whose fault is it that the training wasn't good enough? That's not their fault. They haven't been trained. It's my fault as a leader for allowing them to be in a position that where they do not have the time available to either train themselves or be trained to produce at the level that I need them to do. That is a leadership failure. So, what do I think? I think a good leader sometimes gets buy-in from their people if time permits and if the people are well-trusted and are part of a well-functioning organization, that leader can get out of their way. He not only doesn't need to get their buy-in, but they're the ones who are actually driving the solution. doesn't need to have them buy into his solution because that leader is not the one making the solution to begin with. And a bad leader either makes the decisions all the time because they're in crisis mode and they don't have time to plan well enough in advance and so they're having to make decisions left and right because of time constraints. Or a bad leader is making the decisions because they're trying to get buy-in but failing because the team is not trained or not trustworthy due to a variety of reasons. So that's what I think. What do you think? Email me your thoughts at thinkinghardisnewknowledge at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you think.